It's not an ancient pile of stones. It's a pile of ancient stones, particular ancient stones. This is Allie Daniels, and you're listening to Antimony. Episode 15, Sandalwood and Rot. After breakfast, we were given a tour of the building. At least, we were shown highlights of the lower 149 floors. The upper floors, the ones designated for maintenance, were off-limits, for safety reasons. I wondered if the tour was meant to keep us busy while our GYSP profs were up to something else. Still no sign of Aranka or Finton. I kept my eyes peeled for any sign of where there would be extra space between the service corridors and the regular public ones, or how to access it, but couldn't see anything that helped. When the tour was over, we came back to the hotel floor and for a break before lunch. I walked with Delani to her room. I have something to show you. We sat down on her bed. She reached into the pocket of her pullover and gently lifted out a white rat She cupped it in her hands. It looked back at her with its little red eyes, whiskers twitching and sniffing her in her direction. Adorable, right? It was kind of cute, if I didn't look at its beady red eyes or hairless ratty tail. He's an albino, Rattus Rattus. I named him Bruce. I found him in the elevator. The elevator? When I got on, I felt something brush against my foot. I looked down, and there he was. Everyone else was turned toward the door and watching all the floor numbers whizzing by. But what's Bruce doing in the Burj Khalifa? Probably a pet who got loose or was let go. People buy pet rats and then don't feel like taking care of them anymore. They just release them. Sad. But Bruce is a survivor, aren't you, Bruce? Bruce sniffed some more and twitched his whiskers. Don't rats carry diseases? Should you be holding them like that? Look at how clear his eyes are and how thick his fur is. He looks very healthy, and he's definitely well-fed. She rubbed him behind his little flappy ears. Wait a second. He wasn't a pet. She held him up in front of my face and smoothed his fur back so I could see the matching pink bald patches behind each ear. He's been experimented on. Those smooth spots are where electrodes get attached. Electrodes? I suddenly felt very protective of Bruce. What did people do to him? Whatever it was, I don't think it was painful like shocks. He looks too healthy, and he doesn't seem anxious. Maybe they were trying to scan his brain waves. She looked Bruce in the eyes, I guess reading Bruce for a sign that she was right. Anxious rats are super skinny, and Bruce is fine. Either he got free very recently, or he's already figured out a new food source. 
Speaking of food, I'm hungry. It's almost lunchtime. What are you going to do with Bruce? I'll make him a little nest. If he knows he's safe here, he'll stay, even without a cage. I can bring him some food from lunch. She set Bruce down on the bed and pointed toward the gift basket of toiletries on her dresser. That will work nicely. And it's got all that crinkly paper in the bottom. Bruce looked up at her, then at the door to the room. Then he took off like a shot. No, Bruce! But Bruce had already squeezed himself through the tiny gap underneath the door. The last little bit of his weird bald tail wriggled from view. Come on! She yanked the door open, and we saw Bruce heading down the hallway. Maybe you should just let him go! Delani was already following the little white blur running along the hallway baseboards. Gotta catch him! He's got the flash drive! Delani ran down the hall, turned the corner, and stopped abruptly at the end of the corridor. She appeared to be staring at a blank wall. I caught up with her. <sighs> he's, he's got the flash drive? The spree flash drive? Are you kidding? I put it on the bed so I wouldn't forget to put it in my pocket after I changed clothes. Rats are attracted to shiny things. We've got to get it back. I couldn't believe it. We needed that flash drive. It held the only proof we had of the existence of the spree sanctuaries and the list of rescued Elliot. I looked back down the hallway from where we stood. No sign of a white rat with a small silver thumb drive. He's gone. He went this way. She was pointing at the baseboard. Through here, look. I had no idea what she was looking at. She crouched down and motioned me to follow. See? She pointed at a faint brown oily stripe that ran along the baseboard. It ends right here. She was right. The light brown trail came to a stop right where she was pointing. Rats use the same route over and over again, and the oil on their fur leaves a mark. Bruce went under here. She dug her fingers into the carpet's pile where it met the end of the rat run. Yep. She used both hands to push the carpet down and exposed a hole about the size of a quarter. He went through there. But through here to what? It's just a wall. This doesn't go anywhere. Remember our tour? The ends of the hallways are just the interior of the supporting structure. Behind here are mammoth steel beams and concrete. Bruce went somewhere, and he's been using this run long enough to build up a trail. This hole leads to food. I sniffed. I didn't want to be compared to a rat, but I could smell food, too. Stinky cheese with Dijon mustard on rye bread. I stood up. Too bad we can't follow him. I imagined Bruce threading his bony little way along a gap between the interior wall and the concrete and steel buttresses that made this skyscraper possible. I think we can. I think the space is bigger than we realize. Listen, it's hollow on either side of Bruce's entryway. Rats are very attuned to sound and very attuned to ways that lead to food. There's a passageway behind this wall. We just have to figure out how to get to it. I stood back from the wall and took another look. It looked solid. I leaned up against it, putting my shoulder into it. Delani joined me. 
For just a second, we hesitated, as if we were afraid it would swivel like a false bookshelf in an old movie and we would find ourselves in a cobweb-secret passageway. When nothing happened, we pushed harder. No such luck. I turned to my right. I faced the wall that made a 90-degree angle with the one we were trying to move. That's when I saw it. Another retina scanner. I did the honors. We entered a windowless cement corridor lit overhead by fluorescent lights. It led off to our left. Hushed sounds, mechanical and spoken, and the sandwich smell wafted toward us from somewhere. The votive in my pocket had become very warm. I looked at Delani. She nodded and mouthed, Mine too. Delani and I joined hands and we headed toward the sounds. We walked for about five minutes and came to a cage-like elevator. No buttons, just a lever. The only direction it could go was up. Let's go. Okay. Bruce! There he was, his back end pressed into one corner. His whiskery snout lifted at the sound of his name. The flash drive hung from his mouth. Delani scooped Bruce up and nuzzled him to her cheek. You waited for us. I'll just take that flash drive. Okay, time to go back. We have to go up. We've got the flash drive back, but we need to see what's up there, don't we? Yeah, we do. Now's our chance. For the spree. For the spree. I pushed the lever into the up position, and the lift creaked to a start and made a whirring sound as it lifted us up, up, up. I looked at Delani, who was smiling at Bruce. Bruce twitched his whiskers. The lift was dark, then bright as we passed a bare light bulb, then dark, then light. Points of white light streamed vertically over Bruce's red eyes. We must be almost to the communications level. We've gone up far enough that we must be close. This must be how you get to those floors. The sounds we heard earlier became more distinct. Voices giving orders, the tap of metal on stone, and ropes pulled through squeaky pulleys. The lift came to a stop. Ahead of us, about 15 feet, was a plain concrete wall. To our right was another wall. To our left, a cinder block wall extended just far enough to keep us from seeing whatever was happening in the large, well-lit space beyond. Against this wall was a table with a tray of sandwiches, some soda cans, and a bowl of chips. Delani went up to the table, took half a sandwich, broke off a corner, and gave it to Bruce. Ready? She nodded and stuck Bruce and what remained of the sandwich in her hoodie pocket. We stuck our heads beyond the edge of the wall. We both gasped at once and yanked our heads back. Is, is that... It looks like a ziggurat. Like a Tower of Babel. <laughs> Stop it! What's so funny? It's so bizarre. We're in this ultra-modern place, and at the top of it, there's a top-secret project to make an ancient pile of stones. I don't get it. I didn't get it either. My forehead was puckered big time. We 
poked our heads around again. I pointed to a large crate a few yards from where we stood. It had Orkney stamped on the side. We would both be able to get a better view from behind it. We scuttled over to the crate and crouched down. The massive stone structure stood about six stories tall. It was clearly unfinished. The stones on the top were jagged, uneven, as if there were supposed to be more, but the workers hadn't gotten to it or the architect's plans ran out. The building was constructed from stones of different shapes and sizes, although there were gaps here and there, like someone was working on a giant 3D puzzle. The ones on the lower level were the largest, huge, rectangular blocks. The stones were different shades of goldish-brown, similar to the odd stone in the ring of Brogar. I turned my gaze to the workers. Men and women in business suits with clipboards and tablets were giving orders to the others who wore work gear and boots. Some ladders were tilted into place against the stone. Pulleys and ropes were hung, and I could see baskets in which workers hoisted stones and then maneuvered them into place. Voices were hushed and serious, like solving this jigsaw puzzle would save the world. Or destroy it. I saw that Dr. Gregory was one of the suits. He handed his tablet off to another suit and walked over to a large monitor and studied it. I pointed him out to Delani, who nodded and pointed to another suit, a woman, and mouthed, Dr. Kaleo. She was right. Let's go closer. Delani pointed to another crate, and we scurried over and ducked down behind it. My heart was pounding so hard I could feel it in my feet. We watched the workers for a while as they put stones into place. I still can't tell what this is all about. Can you? I shook my head no, then looked around for another safe place we could watch from that was closer by. We need to go now. She poked me in the side. Ouch! Then I saw what had gotten Delani's attention. Two workers were coming toward the crate we were hiding behind. I pointed at a crate off to our right, a little closer to the tower. We sprinted to it and ducked down along its side so the workers who were now opening the crate where we had been wouldn't be able to see us. Workers were hauling stones up and fitting them into gaps in the building. There were still a lot of holes to be filled, but several teams were working and they seemed to be making good time. I looked over at the crate that was now empty. It was marked Florence. Florence, Italy, was one of the stops we had made, where a van loaded something onto the professor's plane. What did you say they were doing? She shrugged like she didn't know what I meant. I tried again. When we first saw this tower, what did you say? I said they're making an ancient pile of stones. That's it. That's exactly what they're doing. But it's not an ancient pile of stones. It's a pile of ancient stones. Particular ancient stones. Certain stones. Certain stones they've collected from different places. Orkney, Florence, and Paris, and... That's not any old ziggurat, and it's not a Tower of Babel. It's the Tower of Babel. They're rebuilding the Tower of Babel with actual stones. They must have been dispersed all over the world. The Gregories have been collecting them, and they're putting them back together. 
And in two days, the constellation that appeared over Babel on the plains of Shinar is going to happen again here. They're trying to get the tower reconstructed by that time. But why? Remember what happened when we put the ladder into the dome at St. Hildegard's church? Disharmony. Zia's gorgeous voice turned into a horrible shriek. This tower, the Burj Khalifa, is a gigantic radio antenna. And? And they must be planning some kind of broadcast, some kind of disharmonious noise that they can beam around the world that'll somehow make use of the fact that the completed Tower of Babel will be in place under the stars where they were aligned when the tower was originally abandoned. A noise worse than what we heard in the church would be terrible, painful. Maybe even destructive. Discordant sound on that kind of scale would shatter eardrums, bring human activity to a halt. Wait, that's why they had me study the mantis shrimps. What? Why? Mantis shrimp use sound waves to stun or even kill their prey. They strike at the speed of a bullet leaving a gun. The waves they create make bubbles that implode with such a huge force between themselves and their dinner. Dinner doesn't know what hit it. It's called cavitation. Super fast shrimp? Wouldn't the force of the bubbles hurt the shrimp too? It would, but their shells are so tough, people are studying their cellular structure to see if they can use it to make better body armor for combat troops. Wow. But I'm still not sure the cavitation part makes sense. If shrimp cavitate, or however you say it, then they do it underwater. Wouldn't that make a difference? Radio waves go through air, right? Yeah. Plus, I still don't know why the Gregorys would want to destroy things on a massive scale, no matter what method they would use. What do they get out of destroying a lot of stuff? If they want to take over the world, who wants a world where everything is broken? I don't know. We should get out of here. I nodded, but we both still stared at the tower. A suit yelled for a light to be moved, and some workers adjusted one of the tall lights that shone on the base of the tower. As the light's position was changed, it raked across one of the blocks at our eye level, bringing the texture of the block into relief. I nudged Alani. I see those markings, too. On the upper left-hand corner of the block was what looked like two squiggles or symbols too ornate to be random scratches. I looked at the other stones around it. Each of them also showed two symbols. Any idea what those mean? Nope. If it's a language, Neith would know. Maybe we can bring him up here. We better go. Yeah. I looked around to see what might be the safest way back to the lift. I heard Delani squeak. Bruce! Her hoodie pocket was flat against her stomach and her hands were empty. She pointed toward the tower. He's gone inside. This time, he's on his own. He'll be fine. He's a survivor. You said so yourself. Uh-oh. She was looking past me. I turned and saw what she had noticed. Two workers were coming for this crate, and they blocked the most direct route back to the lift. Other workers had moved several of the other crates, so the one we were crouching behind was the last I could see that provided any cover. I looked toward the tower, then at Delani. You're positive Bruce went in there? Positive. 
Okay, we follow Bruce again, but this is the last time. A suit yelled for another light to be moved and got the attention of all the workers in our vicinity, except for the two who were about to reach our crate. I mouthed, one, two, three, go, and we both ran toward the tower. We veered off to the right along its base, hoping we wouldn't run into any workers or supervisors as we turned a corner. Just past the corner, we saw a small, low opening, barely tall and wide enough for each of us to crawl through. We scrambled in. I thought the tower would be dark inside, but a soft, warm glow from flickering oil lamps filled the space. The lamps were perched on stone shelves that protruded from the walls every ten feet or so at all levels. The interior of the tower was open, a big golden-lighted cavern. The stone walls hushed the sounds from outside. We were alone inside. We stood up and walked toward the center. We could see all the way up to the open space at the top, where the harsh artificial light coming from outside the tower made it look like we stood below an abnormally white sky. Bruce! I held my breath. We had nowhere to hide. I hoped no one outside heard. Sorry. She scanned along the base of the walls. I examined higher up. Unlike on the exterior, many of the stones on the interior had small niches carved into them. Some were empty, but several of them held smaller stones, stones that looked familiar. I walked over to one of the blocks for a closer look and knew instantly why. The small stones were votives. The ones I was standing in front of all seemed to be fish of some kind, The details were different, but the general shapes and sizes were the same. I looked at the stones next to the fish collection. Other sea animals. Starfish, seahorses, octopi, anemones. Some things I couldn't identify, but had flippers, gills, or suckers that seemed to put them in a sea creature category. I walked around the room. Each large area held a collection of votives that were all of a similar kind. Horses, cows, dogs, cats. The niches of some areas were filled, like the set was complete. Some areas had open niches. I kept walking and looking. Birds were next. Chickens, gulls, raptors, other winged things. Then pigs. The pig section had an empty niche. I took out my votive, lifted it to the niche, and slid it in. It fit perfectly. It glowed momentarily, and as its light dimmed, I heard a soft sound, like a word was being whispered. The sound reverberated in the tower, But the sound was so soft and sweet, I wasn't afraid it would get anyone's attention. I wanted to hear it again. I took my votive out and slid it in again. The sound repeated. I looked at Delani, who had already taken her votive out. I could see her standing by the horses. She located an empty niche and slid hers into place. Another sweet and soft sound filled the air, but it was different from the one the pig had made. 
Delani took her votive out and came over to me. She was smiling. It reminds me of a toy I loved as a child. It was a colorful plastic circle with a farmer in the middle and pictures of different animals. When you pointed the arrow at a picture and pulled the string, a voice said, What sound does the pig make? And a little oinking noise would come out of the speaker. You think we're inside a giant CNC toy? Yes. Putting the votives in place seems to release some kind of sound. Suddenly, we both heard the voice. I think it was Dr. Kaleo's. Construction is almost complete. A few more votives and we will be ready to move forward with the plan. Are the pronouncers prepared? We have identified one with the proper amount of devolution. Delani spotted Bruce, who had appeared at our feet and looked up at us. Let's hope he knows another way out. Delani bent down toward him, but Bruce started running along the base of the wall, and we followed as quickly as we could. Sure enough, Bruce led us to another opening, the same size and shape as the first. I didn't know if it was the same lift we came up on, but it didn't matter. Bruce sprinted ahead and waited for us. Delani made it, but I was still out in the open. Stop right there. This area's off limits. I froze, my back to whoever had caught me. Then I thought my fear was making me hallucinate. Aunt Alina rushed toward me from the elevator. With swift, expert movements, she pulled a turban towel over my hair, smeared a mud mask on my face, slapped cucumber slices on my eyes, and pulled me swiftly toward her by my elbow. Aunt Alina! I spit out a little mud from the corner of my mouth. Principessa! She grabbed my hand and squeezed hard. I wondered where you'd moseyed off to. You know you're due for your dermabrasion before the fashion show. To the person behind me, she vowed, This will not happen again. The principessa is still on Milan, tiempo, and she must have slept walk away from the spa. She pushed me ahead of her toward the elevator. I got on board and took the cucumbers off my eyes while she pushed the down lever. The elevator lurched to a start, and I hugged her hard. I can't believe... There's no time, I'm afraid, honeycakes. You're safe for now. Just keep on going. But how? The elevator stopped, and the door opened. Go back to your rooms. You'll figure out what to do next. We probably won't see each other again. Remember, you're never alone. She squeezed my hand, touched Delani on the cheek, and stepped into the hall. Guardian angels, God will send thee all through the night. I stared at Delani. I realized I left my votive behind, but it was getting my Aunt Alina back and just as suddenly losing her again that made me start to cry. Then I heard it. Dr. Gregory's voice, now steely and menacing and calling in the direction Aunt Alina had gone. His words chilled me to my core. Samya, this ends now. (laughs) 
Back into Lonnie's room, we explained to Neith, Josh, and Rachel what we had just experienced. You're sure he called her Samya, like the person in your dream who saved the Nephilim? Positive. It can't be a coincidence, but I don't know how she can be the same person unless... Unless? Unless the Nephilim helped her stay alive somehow. With antimony? But it would have killed her a long time ago. No one could take that much and survive. Blood. Elliot blood. Has to be. A reward for helping them. Until now, when she helped us instead. Delani touched my hand. I wanted to sit there forever, with Delani's hand warm on mine, with actual friends who were with me in this. But Neith broke the silence. The one with the proper amount of devolution... I think that's me. While you've been off finding the Tower of Babel, Dr. Eder has been making me read lists of words. As in vocabulary lists? I think so. I couldn't recognize most of the words. Since I couldn't understand what I was saying, it was more like putting together strings of sounds. Dr. Eder said he was perfecting my pronunciation, but when I asked, of what? He just said, keep going. He's starting to smell really bad, by the way. I had noticed... Although his choice of cover-up scent was different from Xanthi's, the rot was getting stronger. What does that have to do with devolution? I don't even know what devolution means. Remember those larynxes in the bell tower? It would be really hard to forget a display of bisected heads. Sorry, yes. I was studying not only how language is developed, but how the human capacity for speech developed. This work would be important for piecing together a map of human communication over time. But we don't have examples of human larynxes over time. Larynxes are tissue. They decompose. We have skull and skeletal remains of earlier hominids, but we don't have tissue samples to compare cheese and pepperoni. We do, too. We have mummified remains. Or rather, the Gregories do. But they're not old enough, only a couple of thousand years. You're talking about the mummified babies. And adults, too, for that matter. Like the Garrison demoniac mummy. Yes, but no. None of the mummies is old enough to indicate what happened on an evolutionary scale. You'd have to look back much further for that kind of information. Maybe we're making the wrong comparison. Try to think like a Grigori. As disgusting as that is, they're peerless. Humans are merely. Peerless are the best. Anything different from them is lesser. They're the perfect blend of angelic and human. Humans have no angelic genetic makeup, so are worthless. The Eliod, us and others like us, are somewhere in between. Some of us are closer to being half and half, the perfect mix and could pass for Nephilim, like Xanthi apparently did. But some of us are further away. Go on. So, angels don't evolve, right? Over time, they wouldn't change. That's one of their attributes. They're not affected by time and circumstance like humans are. But humans have evolved over time, and different creatures with different amounts of human makeup would show different amounts of change. And this has to do with larynxes, how? What we know, Delani, correct me if I have this wrong, is that the difference between apes and humans, larynx-wise, is that our larynx sits lower in our throats than it does in apes. 
with whom we share a lot of genetic material. And that's why we can talk and apes can't? It's more complicated than that, but yes, that may have something to do with it. Okay, I'm thinking that if angels didn't evolve or don't evolve, but humans do, then to speak a particular language in a particular way, you need a particular kind of larynx or one in a particular place? Yes, and the evolutionary scale the Gregorys are interested in may not be the kind anthropologists measure, say from Australopithecus to Homo sapiens, but what angelologists measure, that is, from Watcher through Nephilim to Eliud to human. You mean someone with a higher angel content, if that's what we call it, would pronounce words differently than someone more human because of where their larynx is? Yes. Yes. It might not make a huge difference, but if someone knew what to listen for it, they could probably tell. And if the language or word was for some purpose in particular, you would want someone who can speak it perfectly to do the speaking. Like saying open sesame in just the right way would make the passageway open, but someone with a lisp couldn't do it. Yes, open sesame wouldn't work. It's a shibboleth. Come on, a what? It's from a story in the Bible. Jephthah was a commander of the army of Gilead, fighting against Ephraim. Some Ephraimites tried to fit in with the Gileadites so they could escape. But the Gileadites told every fugitive they met to say the word Shiboleth. Ephraimites made the sh sound and said Siboleth. So they were found out. Neath would pass the Gregory's Shiboleth test, but they themselves can't. What does Shiboleth mean, anyway? It comes from the word for flowing stream. It shows up in Psalm 69, verse 2, in the word for flood. Interesting that a water word would be used, don't you think? Angels can't be in water, but humans can, or at least do better there. But we don't know if they're interested in a specific word or phrase, do we? No, only that the Gregorys are very interested in the sound of my voice. So, what's devolution? It's what the Gregorys call evolution for becoming more human. It's an insult. You're more devolved if you're more human. And you think Neath is more human? I think the Gregorys think so. They're trying to get me to say certain words. And if that's what they're doing, it's because they think if I say them, something important will happen. Or something bad. For humans, at least. They must think I've got the right larynx to pronounce something properly or to achieve the right effect, but I don't know what or why. Suddenly, pieces of the puzzle started coming together. They're looking for the word Jesus used to send the demons out of the garrison demoniac. Jesus set the man free from the demons, but he also set the demons free of the man, releasing them from their human enclosure. Did you recognize any of the words? Yes, I'm certain of at least three of them. Oh? Noah, Antimony, and Book, like Rome Laplage, had said them from the Book of Noah. He knew those three words. Neath pronounced them. They sounded like random syllables to me. Hey, say him again and watch Bruce. Delani had set Bruce down on the bed. 
Our backpacks and my art history book were lying in the middle. Neith said the three words. Bruce went and sat on the book of paintings. Which one means book? This one. Neith pronounced the word again. Okay, wait a second. Delani put Bruce in her lap, then let go of him. Okay, say it now. Neith repeated the word. Bruce sat up on his hind legs, sniffed, then scurried over to the art book. He sniffed its binding, then sat down in the middle of its front cover, blocking the picture of The Presentation in the Temple by Ambrogio Lorenz by some Italian guy whose name I can't pronounce. We all stared at Bruce. Try it again. Start him somewhere else, though, and say some different words, too. Maybe he just likes how that book smells. Delani carried Bruce to the easy chair by the window. Okay, try it. Neith spoke distinctly and slowly. He said in English, Peanut butter, Swiss cheese, pool cue, leaning tower of pizza. And then the word he thought was book. Bruce ran quickly from the chair to the little desk on the wall opposite the bed, climbed up on one of the desk's legs, and sat down on his haunches on top of the desk. So much for that. I'm a little relieved. I'm not. She went over to the desk, picked Bruce up, and then picked up what had been between Bruce and the surface of the desk. Dubai Today, a guidebook to our city, English edition. We sat in silence for a moment, while Delani stroked the back of Bruce's head. It can't be, but what if it is... What? What if all the words are from the Book of Noah? Ron Laplage said the original would have been written before the Flood, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And the story says that Babel happened after Noah and the Great Flood and the Ark and all that, right? Yeah. According to the Bible, Noah was still alive at the time of Babel. But yes... The order in Genesis is creation, watchers, flood, Noah and his family repopulate the earth, tower of Babel, which means diversity of languages comes after the flood. So the book of Noah could have been written in the original universal language, just like Roland Laplage said. And Dr. Eater is coaching you in the original language. I know it sounds ridiculous, but what if it's true? Uh, we know that the Gregorius found the Book of Noah. Uh, they must have gotten their hands on a translation, maybe the one in Hildegard's language. They've either figured out the original language, or at least a bunch of words in it. If it is the original language, wouldn't animals also know it? If it came from a time before a universal disharmony, before the diversity of human languages and enmity between humans and animals? So, Bruce could know the word for book. But books in ancient times weren't like ours. Wouldn't their books be tablets or scrolls, not paperbacks or hardcovers like we have? True. Oh, well. So much for Bruce, the brilliant rat. But she looked at the art book in the middle of the bed. You are a genius! Mwah! Look at the cover of the book. That's what Bruce was sitting on. The painting has an old woman holding a scroll. He knew it. Sure enough. Look. The cover is a picture of a clay tablet from their Museum of Antiquities. I wonder what other words Bruce knows, or rather, 
I wish I knew the meaning of any of the other words Dr. Eater made me practice, and we could try them out on Bruce. I wonder. Try this. She got her horse-shaped votive out of her hoodie pocket and set it on the bed. Do you know the word for horse? No idea. I'll try. I tried to remember the soft sighing sound I heard in the tower when Delani had put her votive in the niche. It sounded like a horse's mane riffled by the wind. I made the sound as well as I could remember it. Bruce leapt off Delani's lap, went to the votive, and sniffed at it. How? Don't know exactly, but I think Neith has some more words to learn. And we need to figure out why the Gregories want him to. Neith, what were you looking at when you were doing this vocabulary drill? He gave me a list of words written in our alphabet, so he's just sounding out syllables. What did he have? Did he have a list that looked the same as yours? Mm, I wasn't close enough to see details, but I could see that his page had three columns. I think his page had my list in one of the columns, probably a list next to it in the original script, and then a list of meanings. You have an idea about the original script, don't you? I think it's the same as what Rowan Laplage had. Wow. Did it look like this? She scribbled some lines and held them up. She had written what we had seen on the tower. Yeah, something like that. Then I think words were written on the tower in the original language and also in some other ancient languages. It would be like a giant 3D Rosetta Stone. The Rosetta Stone had two languages people knew and a third that no one knew. Since the words written in the first two languages meant the same thing, they figured that the third set might too, and they could use clues from the first two to figure out the third. But why would someone write all over the building or on each of its building blocks? It's a giant puzzle. If you were taking a building apart, how would you put it together again and know you had all the right pieces in the right place? I would mark the pieces. I would number them. Many ancient languages used letters for numbers, like A equals 1, B equals 2. Maybe that's what they did, and if they knew the original language was falling into disuse, they might mark each stone with a couple of languages to be sure that someone would be able to reassemble it someday. If we could get another look at the tower, we could... Wait. Someone's coming. Suddenly, I could smell the particular odor of Dr. Eater... Rotting diapers under a strong dose of sandalwood. I thought about shoving everyone but Delani ahead of me into the closet, since no one but Delani was supposed to be in her room. But I couldn't react before we heard the door lock click open. Delani stuffed Bruce in her pocket. Dr. Eater strode in. Your blatant disregard of the rules has saved me the effort of knocking on another door. This part of the trip has reached its conclusion. You have 15 minutes to pack your things for departure. Departure? I felt relieved he hadn't said extraction, but confused about why we would leave now. If the Gregorys needed Neath for something having to do with the original language, wouldn't we stay here by the tower? Wouldn't they want us, or Neath at least, to be here for the big broadcast or whatever they were planning in two days? You have figured out so much already. I'm sure you can discern where to go next. 
Which one of you will say it? I will. Iceland. Fifteen minutes. And you can stop wondering about Fenton and Aranka. Fenton turned out to be of more use as a subject of medical experimentation than as a student. And... Dr. Eater extended a canvas bag towards Neith. Here is your final larynx for study. Neith shuddered, and Dr. Eater put the bag on the floor in front of him. To me, Dr. Eater said, Your dreams have the power to cross realms from present to past. Aranka's dreams reveal the future. We could not have her spoil the surprise for you. Security guards are outside this door. Don't even think about trying to escape. This is Allie Daniels. Thank you for listening to Antimony. This podcast was written by Amy Richter and is based on the novel Antimony, published by Whipfenstock. Copyright 2019. The novel is available at whipfenstock.com, amazon.com, and other online booksellers. Music was composed and arranged by Pan Conrad. You've been listening to the voices of the Silver Linings Players, a group of volunteers from all over the world who came together virtually during the COVID-19 pandemic to record this podcast for you. Episode 15 featured, in order of appearance, Lydia Brower as Kaya, Catherine Hilton as Delani, Joseph Pagano as the security guard, Josiah Dykstra as Dr. Gregori, Jenny Ovenstone-Smith as Dr. Kaleo, Kristen Pageant as Aunt Alina and Samya, Emmett Pro Richter as Neith, David Merrill as Josh, and Kadri Holmes as Dr. Eder. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, review, or tell a friend. We'll be back soon with the conclusion of Antimony. Antimony.